Psalm 14 this evening in your copy of the Holy Scripture. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Psalm 14 or Psalm 53. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are duplicate psalms with very few small variations that were probably revisions that were made by perhaps the worship leaders or the musicians for use on a different occasion. The variations between Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, Psalm 14 uses the name of Yahweh, translated capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in a few verses, verse two, verse four, verse six, while Psalm 53 uses the name Elohim. In our English, it's capital G, lowercase o-d, and you would find those in those same verses. The, also, the, the difference between Psalm 14 and Psalm 15 is a small variation in versification. Psalm 53 replacing Psalm 14.6 with an addition to its fifth verse rather than a sixth verse. But those small variations are minimal. And yet we have both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 for us in the, in the Psalter. And uh, so I would have you turn there. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 in both cases describe God's view of mankind from heaven above. In both Psalms, Psalm 14 and in Psalm 53, verse number two, I point you to verse number two, says the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men. And these psalms give us a view from above, God's view of mankind. I'm sure that each of you have had on some occasion the opportunity to enjoy the window seat of an airplane. And as that plane takes off and climbs into the sky, banking ever so slightly to set its course to your destination, you look out the window, peering out the window for some familiar landmarks on the ground below, perhaps buildings or, or roads or lakes. And then, of course, the same thing occurs as the plane descends to make its final approach. After sleeping or reading or watching some in-flight entertainment, you, you pull up the window shade and you look out that window to the ground below to try to identify anything that you might recognize on the ground below. And numerous times over the years, I have had the experience, you may have as well, to fly over the Fourth Baptist Church campus for approaching MSP Airport from the west. We are in the flight path or the flight corridor of, of the airplanes that are coming to land at MSP. And on occasion, I have been able to see Fourth Baptist Church, its parking lot, Honeywell next door, and I've recognized that. But in every case, things seem so small from the sky. Our 22-acre campus is so small. A number of years back when my son and I went skydiving, we jumped out of a perfectly good airplane at 14,000 feet and after free falling for 60 seconds, if you can imagine that, reaching terminal velocity, free falling at, uh, for 60 seconds, falling 200 feet per second, our instructors pulled the parachute and began steering our way toward the landing zone of that skydiving event and the landing zone was 
was next to a building that looked about the size of a postage stamp. However, what they had done is they had painted the roof of that, of that building so that from five or 10 or 14,000 feet, you could identify that's where we need to go and that's where we need to land. And we landed safely, if you care to know. Um, but any view from an airplane, any view from a, a mountaintop is a spectacular view. And, and you can imagine looking out from the International Space Station to planet Earth, and that's a bucket list item in my life that will probably never come to realization, but maybe my kids will travel into space and and they will see planet Earth from outer space. Imagine God's view from heaven. Not his view of the blue and white marble we call planet Earth. Not his view of buildings and roads and lakes like we might see from an airplane, but rather his view when he looks upon mankind, when he looks on us. Psalm 14, verse two. Psalm 53, verse two. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men. And folks, what he sees is not good. He sees man. And I've titled this message, The View from above. Let me pray briefly and then we'll look at Psalm 14. God in heaven, thank you for the moments we've spent together around the table as your church, reflecting on and remembering the sacrifice of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we we saturate our minds and our hearts with the truths of the gospel, we're, we're just so thankful And now, God, as we turn our attention to the scripture, to these psalms, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Lord, we're mindful that when you look down on us, you see us in our wretched, wicked, fallen state, and yet, somehow, you have set your love upon us, and we're thankful for that as well. I pray that you'd give us insight now by your spirit from the scripture. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Psalm 14, verse number one The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord, Yahweh here, looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now, at first read of verse number one, we think of this fool who has spoken in his heart, this fool as being the atheist. And the atheist is one who denies the existence of God. This fool is one who says in his heart, there is no God. And when we think of atheists, we think of those unreached people groups in third world countries who maybe cannot read or write. They're unlearned pagans. However, the fool in verse number one is not dumb but defiance, an important distinction to make. The fool in verse one is not dumb, but rather defiant. Verse three says that these fools are those who have turned aside from what they know about God. Romans one describes it this way. You listen as I read, it's a familiar passage. Romans one, beginning of verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because... What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, 
even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. We have no excuse when we look at the general revelation of creation because although they knew God, they were not dumb, they were defiant. They did not glorify him as God nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. How does the fool in Psalm 14 verse one or Psalm 53 verse one say there is no God because their heart is darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. That's what's happening here in Psalm 14 verses one through three. I would title verses one through three, intentional ignorance of God is foolish, number one. Number one in your notes, intentional ignorance of God is foolish. Now, there are a few Hebrew words that are translated fool in our English Old Testaments, and on the back of your notes, I've given you the two most common, and these are found frequently in the book of, of Proverbs. The first is, it's not evil, it's a veal, and the fool, the avil fool in the book of Proverbs is one who is overconfident, destructive influence, mocks sin, uncontrolled, quick to lose his temper, rejects his father's discipline, despises wisdom, gets his friends in trouble, blames others for his failure, quarrels and argues, lingers in anger, will not change, doesn't listen to reason. Perhaps you know a fool like this, the avil fool. Perhaps you are the avil fool as described in Proverbs. There's a second word that's translated fool in the book of Proverbs and that's the kazeel. The kazeel fool. And this is how Proverbs describes this one. Despises wisdom, complacent, spouts folly, spreads slander, enjoys sin, careless, brags, wastes time in school, (laughs) grief to parents, causes strife, lies, doesn't listen to instruction, repeats his folly, trusts his own heart, says what he thinks, the kazeel. And perhaps you know someone like this or perhaps you are someone like this. Folks, if you, if you read the book of Proverbs, do a topical study in the book of Proverbs comparing and contrasting the wise man and the fool, either the avil or the kazeel, it, it can change your life. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord and then wisdom living can spare you so much hurt and so much harm in your life. Don't be an avil or a kazeel as we read of in the book of Proverbs. But then there's, a, there's another Hebrew word that is translated fool for us in, in, in our English Bibles and that is the word nabal. That is the Hebrew word that we find In Psalm 14, verse number one, Nabal was both the proper name and the character trait of one in 1 Samuel 25, 25, who refused to help David. And the story in 1 Samuel 25 is that this man, Nabal, was living near Carmel on land that was under the protection of David. And one of Nabal's uh, servants even reported how that David had been very good to them, providing protection for Nabal's servants and, and, and providing protection and 
day and night for them to, to sleep and to work and such. However, in that David was on the run from King Saul at the time, David asked Nabal to share some of his provisions with David and his men, but Nabal refused to help David and even insulted David's servants and, and David's messengers, and then he died soon after. And, and really the scope there in 1 Samuel 25 is beyond our, our purpose this evening, but... Um, the, the Nabal name and the Nabal term used here before us in Psalm 14.1 is a category of fool that is not dumb but is defiant, rejecting what is needful. Let me illustrate. I'll illustrate it in this way. Think about a leaf. Think about a leaf that's growing on a tree. The leaf is dependent upon the tree from which its very life has sprung in the spring, sometime around June or July in Minnesota, right? Now, as a, as a thought experiment this evening, consider what would happen if that leaf had a will of its own and that leaf decided it no longer needed the tree, decided to separate itself from the nutrition, its source of nutrition on the tree and knowingly turned aside, I'm borrowing from the language here in Psalm 14 verse three, turned aside and jumped off the tree. Would the leaf be better off? Off the tree. If the leaf decided to separate itself from its source of nutrition, it could go where it wanted to go. It could do what it wanted to do. It was no longer bound to the tree. But apart from what was needful for that leaf, it would quickly die. And we know that, of course, to be the case as the seasons change when fall approaches and the leaves fall in August in Minnesota, right? That's not, that's not true, but... Um, but we understand the, the leaf withers and dies. And the illustration is trivial and, and maybe even a bit condescending, but I use it because it's an illustration that Jesus used in John 15 when he called us to abide in the vine. For without me, you can do nothing. Our life source the needful thing there. And the idea behind the Hebrew Nabal, the fool, is not that a person doesn't believe that God exists, but that in knowing God exists has nonetheless separated himself from that life source. That is unwise. It's worse than unwise. It's downright foolish. So the fool here in Psalm 14.1 is not dumb, but defiant, the fool is intentionally ignorant. Furthermore, uh, beyond the point here that I've just made, it's, it's not just the meaning of the word, the, the navel, the defiant fool that separates himself from what is needful, but our English Bibles read that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. However, the two words, there is, are not in the Hebrew text. They're supplied by the English translators and one of the reasons that I appreciate my New King James Version here is that every English word that's in the English New King James Version that is not found in the original text but supplied by the the translators is in italics. And so as I look at the scripture here, the fool has said in his heart, there is, is in italics. 
no God. It could most literally read, the fool, the Nabal, has said in his heart, no God. And the fool defiantly rejects the life source like the leaf that severs itself from the tree. It may be free to go where it wants and do what it wants, but it will quickly wither and die. And when man does this, the consequences are corruption to their entire being, the heart and the mind and the will. Look at verse number one. In verse number one, it's the heart. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. This is the heart in verse one. Verse two, it's the mind. Look at verse two again. The Lord looks down from, the, from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. And then the will, in verse number three, they have all turned aside, they have together become corrupt, there's none who does good, no, not one. This is the view of God from heaven. This is what God sees when he looks down on planet Earth, or more specifically on on mankind. And this is not just ancient poetry. This is New Testament theology. For the Apostle Paul borrows from this very psalm in writing to the Roman church, Romans 3, verses 10 to 12. As it is written, Romans 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Paul's use of this psalm. And how devastating it must be for God to look down upon his creation, to look upon us, and to see this case. Verse number four. Verse four, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? This is a bit rhetorical. Yes, they know. Even from the general light of creation, they know, they have knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. One of the commentators that I read quipped that they don't pray to God, they pray on people. That is, they don't pray P-R-A-Y to God, there at the end of verse number four, they don't call on the Lord, but rather they pray P-R-E-Y on people and this is the history of mankind destroying and devouring one another and God looks down from heaven and he watches the wicked foolishly try to devour the righteous I feel like that is happening today in, in real time and we could cite current events of course how that God's people everywhere even here in the free west are being eaten up like bread eaten alive yet God is in the presence of his people and he will shelter us. Verses five and six are our hope. Verse five, there they are in great fear, speaking of the wicked, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Now, the, the, the NIV reads, but there they, the, the, the wicked, are overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. And I struggle with verse number five because it doesn't seem to me that the wicked are afraid of God at all. And it doesn't seem to me that God's presence is always with the generation of the righteous. Keep your finger in Psalm 14 and go with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 where Asaph 
describes the, the attitude of the wicked. And, and tell me if Psalm 73 doesn't appear to contradict Psalm 14, verse number five. Psalm 73, I'll begin in verse number four. Psalm 73, verse four. There are no pains in their death. That's the wicked from verse number three. But their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. They are not, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, this people turn here. And waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? God doesn't see what we do. He doesn't know what we're doing. If he does see, if he does know, he can't do anything about it. Verse 12, behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in in riches. Back in Psalm 14, verse number five, David is, is speaking expectantly. I believe that he's, he's foreseeing the fear or the dread that the wicked will experience when God comes to judge. And I think the people of God for all of human history have been impatient for this very day. Lord Jesus, now we say come quickly, right the wrongs and set the record straight and judge the wicked. Psalm 14 verse six, you shame the counsel of the poor the wicked shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord Yahweh is his refuge. Or I could read this in the NIV. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. And while evildoers appear to be plotting everything and exploiting everyone around them, God's presence is with the righteous, verse number five. He is our refuge, verse number six. The last phrases of verses five and six are, are phrases that you need to underscore or highlight to, to read and, and to claim the presence of God, the refuge of God. And the wicked don't know it now, but they will be overwhelmed by God's judgments, which is what I would then give you number two, mandatory meeting of God is frightful. The mandatory meeting of God is frightful. The the fool can intentionally ignore God today, but the fool will meet God someday. And again, if we were to turn to Psalm 73, Asaph was disillusioned when he watched the wicked prosper that is, until he foresaw their end in verse 17. And you know the psalm, Psalm 73, Asaph says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And that meeting with God will be frightful, frightful destruction for the wicked. Look at verse number seven. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Oh, that the salvation would come out of Zion and through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, God promised that a redeemer would deliver Israel. The apostle Paul affirmed what the prophet said in his discussion of the yet future redemption of Israel in Romans 11. Of course, we know that redeemer to be Jesus Christ. 
There, the, the next phrase there in verse number seven, when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, I, I don't believe this captivity is referring to the, the Babylonian captivity because that only lasted for 70 years. Rather, Jesus Christ will return, defeat his enemies, cleanse Israel, establish his kingdom on earth. Zechariah chapters 10 through 14. And it is then that Jacob, who's Jacob? Israel. And Israel will rejoice and be glad. There's some, some parallelism there um, at the end of verse number seven. Let Jacob rejoice. Israel be glad, saying the same thing. And that would be number three. Redemption's rejoicing in God is yet future. Redemption's rejoicing in God is yet future when Israel will celebrate their redemption. Now, what do we do with the psalm? What is our takeaway from Psalm 14? David wrote Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 from the perspective of God above. God's view from heaven above was devastating when he saw and foresaw the foolishness and the wickedness of man in rejecting him. And when he saw and foresaw what he would do to them in the future. David wrote another psalm, Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, God wasn't looking down from heaven. David was looking up from earth. And David was looking at the majesty of God's creation in the heavens. The sun, the moon, and the stars which God had ordained. And from David's perspective on the ground below, he mused about God looking down from heaven and being mindful of man. You know Psalm 8 well. What is man that you are mindful of him? Well, let me tell you the mind of God in looking down on man. It's here in Psalm 14. And David, also the human author of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, understands that when God looks down from heaven on man, this is what he sees. There is none righteous, no, not one. When man looks up at the heavens and the creation and the majesty of of all that God has has made, what is man that, that you are mindful of him? How is it that God could care for that God could love the unlovely, his sinful, wicked, rebellious creation while we were yet sinners. God demonstrated his love toward us in sending Jesus Christ as we've remembered this evening. This teaches us something about the marvelous character of our great God. He knows that the Apostle Paul was the chief of sinners. He knows that each of us are the chief of sinners, as Pastor Jeremy brought out this evening. But in his mercy and in his love and in his grace, he looked down and was mindful of us, loved us, and gave us what we could not gain for ourselves. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for looking upon us Thank you so much for loving us in spite of ourselves. Thank you, God, for redeeming us, your fallen creation. Lord, may we not be fools. 
May we not be defiant, stubborn. May we not reject what is most needful for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to cling and abide in the vine as that leaf on the tree. And Lord, may we always be impressed with your deep love for us. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.